Today's guest is someone I could talk with 20 times and always learn something new. She's the author of the best-selling Psychology in Your Life series of books, and she's a world-renowned expert in community, health, and applied social psychology. In this episode, we dive super deep into how to deal with imposter syndrome and also into how to navigate through fear, which, as you know, is one of my absolute favorite topics. We also talk about the process of writing a book and self-publishing, because in addition to being a psychologist, she now teaches entrepreneurs, coaches, visionaries, and regular folks how to turn their ideas into high-impact nonfiction books that really transform people's lives. Since I have several books that are wanting to be born, I was really jazzed to be able to get her insights into that as well. There's a ton of information, tips, and tools in here, so get ready for a thought-provoking conversation. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head-on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Today's guest, Dr. M.A. Vida Estacio, is a best-selling author psychologist, and the founder of Self-Publishing Made Simple. With her books, which include Change Your Life for Good, Imposter Syndrome Remedy, and Fear is Not My Enemy, she shares strategies from applied psychology on how to heal insecurities and move past fears of rejection and uncertainty. With her experience in writing and self-publishing, she has helped other survivors of abuse to share their stories and to inspire other people by writing their own books, helping them to own their story and take pride in what they've achieved. I am so excited to have you on the show. So welcome to the podcast, M.A. Thank you very much for having me, Cynthia, and I hope that our conversation will serve your audience today. I'm absolutely positive it will. You have so much to share and talk about and I know there's going to be a lot of interest in what we cover. So I do want to dive into that. But first, I always like to ask some kind of fun questions just to get us in the groove of recording. So are you ready for that? Yeah, let's go. Okay. What is your all-time favorite book? Oh, my all-time favorite book is Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. This is a book that has inspired me and really influenced me in how I live my life. In fact, my My psychology practice, I call it the PAMI code. It's inspired by his principles, understanding that we have to set our intentions, couple that with action, maintain the momentum, and also surround ourselves with positive people. You know, he calls that the mastermind in his books. And that has really inspired and influenced me in the way I live my life and the way I interact with other people. When did you first read it? I think I was about seven or eight years old. I started really early when I was introduced to his book, and I I found that just really fascinating. He talked about the man who thinks is the man who thinks he can. And okay, it was a little bit sexist with the language, but I interpreted that as we have our uh, ability to manage our thoughts. It is our thoughts that can 
direct us to do what we intend to do. And when we have our thoughts and direct our thoughts into our goals, we can couple that with action and we can make our goals become reality. Wow. That is like not standard reading fair for a seven-year-old. <laughs> well, for me, I, I, I did start early with, I'm a little bit of a nerd, I have to say, and I did enjoy reading. I do remember reading encyclopedias when I was a child as well. So yeah, I was a bit of a nerd, a bit of an introvert as well. I really enjoyed reading. And yeah, even until I, I grew up, I continued reading. And until now, I still continue to read. I love to learn. And I also enjoy writing and publishing my books and sharing what I know with others as well. That's really cool because I've, I've had several conversations lately where one of the themes has been, gosh, I wish that kids learn this at a young age rather than you know growing up to adulthood and then going, holy cow, I really need to learn about this. And the fact that you read a book like that when you were a child, I mean, what an amazing head start you got in mindset as you were going through your adolescence and towards adulthood. That's so cool and so powerful. It's, that's just wonderful to hear. And I wish that it were really simpler to bring that kind of mindset education to younger folks. Because it's hard because usually we get to it as an adult after we've already struggled. Yes, absolutely. And certainly in the education system, I think this is something that a lot of educational psychologists are advocating right now. There's a lot of focus on academic excellence, you know, doing fantastic in science, math, literature, but forgetting real life skills and particularly helping the children to understand the importance of mindset setting intentions, setting goals, and how you can build the resilience and grit to power through to, to make those goals a reality. So I really do think that there is a scope to include mindset training at an early age so you, you can uh, develop these skills at an early age. I think for me, I've been fortunate that I was educated in a non-traditional, in a non-traditional school our school didn't have grades. We had a non-grading system whereby we take a module, we read it ourselves, we study it on our own as students. And when we are ready to test ourselves, we go and ask the teacher, can we take the test? We take the test, we take the answer key, we correct our own papers. And if we don't have the, the level of mastery required to move on to the next module, we will have to retake that module until we master it. So from that early age, I was in that, in that setting where we didn't really have the stress of taking exams because we will take the test whenever we felt we were ready. And we didn't move on to the next module unless we really understood the foundations. We were self-paced, we were driven to to learn and, and move at our own level. And I think that we, we were trained to, to, to have that interest in learning and, and pursue you know, that, that, that uh, academic route the way we want to, to progress. So I think I've been fortunate that I, I went to that school and, and we had that kind of training. That's wonderful. I mean, that's really how education should be, as self-directed and self-paced and self-motivated. Because what happens in the traditional school environment is 
it doesn't really matter what you as the child happen to be interested in or where you are in your personal development. The curriculum is the curriculum and the pace is the pace and the program is the program and you're supposed to do it. And if you don't, well, obviously there's something wrong with you. And that I think is how we crush a lot of kids and we teach them to hate learning and to not want to take ownership of their own development because it's so difficult to succeed like that. So that's, that's a wonderful way to have grown up. And where was that school? It was in the Philippines. It was called Angelicum College. I think it is called in a different name now. But yeah, we, we had a non-traditional system. We didn't have grades. That made it a little bit difficult for us to go into universities because when they ask for our transcripts to see our grades, we couldn't present any <laughs> because it's either you passed high school or you didn't. But, you know, we, we got our, our way, uh, we, we, we found ways to, to go around that the, the school had to explain that our system was different. And all we had to do was take a, an entrance test for the universities. And if we passed it, we passed it. And to be perfectly honest with you, at, at the university level as well, I did study psychology, but I was uh, given the opportunity to take so many electives as part of my degree. And I was able to shape my own learning. You know, I pursued my own interests. So as a psychology major, I had a lot of electives. I took electives in education, uh, particularly in children's literature, special education child development and so on. And I did learn a lot about learning, about modifying behaviors, and it, it actually really complemented psychology well. And I, I, again, you know, I feel that I'm fortunate that my early training, you know, from high school, from the university, it's almost like I was primed to, to do what I'm doing right now because all of the foundations were set right. After doing my degree in psychology, I eventually pursued a degree in health and community psychology. And again, there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of mindset. But at the same time, you also couple this with the importance of the environment, the importance of surrounding yourself with positive people, the importance of being in a nurturing environment where your capabilities are encouraged that it is that you are encouraged to grow and develop and when you have uh, structural barriers for example you no know, challenges that could restrict people from fulfilling their fullest potential at the community level we can look into that make some adjustments so no you know no one is being left behind in, in the progress wow there's so much value in all those different aspects. And I can see how that kind of come together into the work that you do now. It, it all sort of aligns in the same direction. Absolutely. And for me, especially at postgraduate level, um, we've, we've had a lot of debates in psychology, whether it is down to the individual to, to modify their thoughts and make changes in their lives, or whether it is about the community and the environment and the structure that contributes to the health and well-being of the people. And for me, having seen both sides, I think it's a matter of balance. For us individuals, we, we have the ability to control our own thoughts. We have the ability to feel the, how to manage our emotions 
so we can make more informed decisions and more balanced decisions on, on how we will act. There is only so much, however, that we can do as individuals when the environment is stifling our growth, when, we, when our choices are constricted, and when the environment is not allowing you to exercise your choices. So I would say that there needs to be a balance between the two. There's uh, something that we could do around mindset work and motivational work and so on. But we also must never forget the importance of having supportive structures, having a, an environment when, where your abilities are recognized, when you as an individual is being recognized, and that you're being supported in your emotional needs and psychological needs, your, your aspirations, so you can make your choices and implement your choices, you know, because you are being the you are being given the opportunity and support to do so. Yeah. Wow. I'd like for you to design the new educational system. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be a huge task. <laughs> it would, but the the framework and and how you just explained it makes so much sense to me. And and it, I guess it's probably too intelligent and too sensible to actually get implemented that way. But what a difference it would make if, if that was how our environments were and that was, that was how we were focused and supported. Uh, just to have a balance. I think balance is really important. Has there ever been a, a time in your life when you felt like you were completely out of balance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, if, if people look at, look at my life from an outsider's perspective, you might think that, that I've done things perfectly, that I started at a, at a very early age. I, I did my psychology degree when I was 15 years old. I came here to the UK to pursue my postgraduate education at 19. I carried on, do my master's, do my PhD, became a lecturer. I led research projects with communities. You would think that my life and my career is actually going really well. But the truth was, when I started my family, I gave birth to my son. It was a wonderful time. I have to say that I do feel blessed that I have my family and that I have my son. However, when I returned to work after maternity leave, that's when things became out of balance. Because before I had my son, all I had to do was focus on my work. I was career obsessed. There were times when I was working 60 hours a week because I was also suffering from imposter syndrome. Uh, this is a little bit ironic because I coach, you know, I coach people how to manage imposter syndrome. I wrote a book about imposter syndrome, what it is and, and why it is important to manage it. And yet I experienced imposter syndrome myself. I was feeling self-doubt, I was feeling incompetent, and I was afraid that people are going to find out that I'm a fraud. So the way I managed that was I worked 60 hours a week just to be sure that if I put in the work, then I could hide my imperfections. If I don't put in that much work, then I'm going to fail. So for a time before I had my son, that sort of worked. Because I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't have any other responsibility. So I just focused mainly on work. But when I gave birth to my son, that was no longer possible, right? I'm sure, you know, parents could relate to this, that when you have a child, 
your your priorities shift and for me i did suffer a little bit of an identity crisis because now i don't have 60 hours a week to work anymore and i was afraid that now that i i couldn't pour in too much time at work now they are going to find out that i'm incompetent now that they are going to find out that that i'm a fraud so it was quite a challenging time for me apart from the exhaustion you know the lack of sleep because of uh, you know because you had to take care of your baby at night and 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 then i have to go to work it was absolutely exhausting i did have a, a mental breakdown at that time you know couple that with the identity crisis some issues around work as well too much work and didn't even have the transition, you know, the, the steady transition back to work. It was a really difficult time. And I have to say, I did experience a mental breakdown and to the point that I was on the verge of uh, taking my own life. Oh, that's, that's hard to hear, but I can so relate to it. And I think it's not, unfortunately, an uncommon experience. I mean, crime, you know, I spent 30 years in Silicon Valley. Uh, I was in high tech for a long time myself. And I think many women did exactly what you did. Maybe not quite at the same age because you were really ahead <laughs> age-wise. But, you know, that drive to prioritize work and to prove that you're good enough and prove that, you know, you're not a fraud, right, really does take a toll. And then when you do add the element of starting a family, it seems like nothing really drops off your plate. It's just everything more than doubles in terms of time, effort, energy, inner resources, and exhaustion, as you mentioned, and there's not much support around. And so I think it's common for women who then go back to work and are trying to hold all of that together. <laughs> Absolutely. And as far as imposter syndrome is concerned, you know, this feeling of self-doubt, inadequacy, feelings of incompetence, for women who are in male-dominated industries, this is quite common. This is a common feeling as if you're not good enough or that you don't quite fit in. But generally, in our population, 70% of us will experience imposter syndrome, the feeling that you're not good enough, that you're not competent enough, and that people are going to find out that you are a fraud. And for people who experience imposter syndrome, it's not as if they just have this self-doubt. It's this persistent feeling that, uh, that you don't have the skills, that you don't have the qualifications, that you are unable to internalize your success. So even if you are good at what you do, even if you are showing the results, in my case, uh, at early on in my career, I was already writing textbooks, I had research publications, I was leading projects. From the outside, you might think I am in control, that I, I, I have the confidence to, to build my career and show that I've got what it takes to be a successful um, psychologist, to be a, a successful academic. But deep down, I was feeling as if, okay, all of these things that I'm accomplishing, it's not that because I am good, you know, I am doubting my own abilities. I would say things like, ah, you know, I just got lucky. You know, I was at the right place at the right time. Or when people give me compliments, I would say things like, oh, you know, they're just being nice to me. They're just being polite. So for people who experience imposter syndrome, 
they have this inability to embrace their success. So they aren't able to recognize that what they are doing, they are doing well. And they, they are not able to celebrate that. And most of the time when things don't go well, you know, when things don't go the way they want them to go, they will always blame themselves. They will always focus on the, the small things that didn't go quite right and, and ignore the things that are going well. And in my case, particularly when I was struggling with my mental health, it was quite difficult for me to, to recognize that I'm actually doing a pretty good job trying to balance being a mom. And, and also, uh, at that time, I, I was the breadwinner in the family as well. So I, I have to keep on working and I, have to, uh, I ha- also have to um, support my, my baby. I was breastfeeding at that time. I didn't recognize that I was doing a good job. But what I can see is that I'm doing uh, those two roles halfway. That whenever I'm at work, I'm feeling guilty that I'm not at home, and whenever I'm at home, I'm feeling guilty that I'm feeling guilty that I should be working. So, it was it was quite a difficult experience. It did take me uh, a bit of time to make sense out of it. Uh, about two to three years, you know, before I I eventually managed to recover, and I'm sure for. For many women who experience postnatal depression, you know, returning to work after maternity, this is not an uncommon experience. And if you're someone who's feeling this way, um, don't be afraid to ask for help. And don't be embarrassed that you are experiencing this. Don't be afraid to admit when you are struggling and when you're having uh, difficulties. Because certainly for me, the point where I started to heal was when I acknowledged that I needed help. And when I started to reach out for help, then the healing process began. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I totally get that. And I think it's it's part of this false image that we have that we're all super women and we should be able to do all the things all the time, not just to the best of our ability, but at an excellent, like overachieving level. And I mean, we're human beings. We're we're not superheroes. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about your podcast and your listeners. You know, we all want to be a badass. And it's good to be achievers and, and to show your to show up as these strong uh you know independent women, but we also have to recognize that as badasses, we need to recognize that we are also human, that we cannot be perfect all the time. And there's something quite, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's something quite humbling when you admit that you need help, when you admit that you are human and that you are someone who can be vulnerable as well. I think that's quite badass as well. When you recognize your own imperfections, embrace your own imperfections, and still love yourself, even even if you can see yourself as imperfect. When we recognize that we are human and that we need help sometimes, we we can reach out to other people. And the burden seems lighter when we when we share our wins and our challenges with other people as well. Absolutely. I, for me, part of being a badass is having self-awareness. And recognizing, I, I am actually a finite resource, not an infinite resource. And there are certain situations where the cost of trying to do everything myself 
is too high. And I continue to try to do that and pay the cost. I can actually put myself into such a bad situation that I may not be able to recover. And there's nothing badass about that. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've noticed as well, for people who try to hide their imposter syndrome and if their coping mechanism was like mine when they try to hide their feelings of incompetence by overstretching themselves and by people-pleasing and not admitting that they need help, the consequence to that is that you might experience burnout. And certainly for me, I experienced that. It was, it was quite devastating that I was psychologically unwell, but at the same time, my body was responding from, from that exhaustion and from that overstretching of my abilities. I was getting irritable bowel. I was getting vertigo. I was getting sick all the time. And so if you try to overstretch yourself and experience burnout as a result of you not recognizing and not being aware of your own limitations and not seeking help when you need it, the consequences to your health and well-being could be quite dire. Yes. So that leads me to another question, which is what is your favorite self-care practice? Oh, my favorite self-care practice. Uh, One of the things that I teach in my book, Imposter Syndrome Remedy, is called the TLC Technique. Now, the TLC technique is not necessarily tender loving care, but it's, it can be close. It can be close because there's a little bit of compassionate self-talk associated with it. And the, the way we apply the TLC technique is, first of all, we need to understand your inner critic message. You need to understand um, where the inner critic is coming from. I know that there are some self-help gurus who might ask you to crush your inner critic, ignore your inner critic, banish it, have a fight with it. But what I would say is that your inner critic is actually still part of who you are. It is a, a message inside your brain. Of course, you know, it could tell you nasty things like you're not good enough, that you're going to fail, that people are going to judge you, and so on. All these nasty things. But even if you recognize that it's an inner critic, you don't necessarily have to have a fight with it simply because that inner critic is in your head. And if you try to have a fight with the inner critic, you are essentially having a fight with yourself. So what I would suggest to do is in my books, I talk about the TLC questioning sequence. And this sequence asks you, to explore your inner critic message, to look for ways to understand where that message is coming from by asking three questions. And these questions are, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? That's why I call it the TLC questioning sequence because it allows you to explore the messages asking, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? Because more often than not, the messages that you are telling yourself are lies. They are just simply untrue. They have no evidence. There's no basis for it in reality. They are illogical and they can be destructive. So when you have your inner critic messages, you know, when you hear these chatters from your inner critic, instead of trying to suppress it and quiet it down, what you need to do is you need to be aware explore where these messages are coming from and ask the question, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? 
ask yourself with a little bit of self-compassion, understand that your inner critic might be afraid. All your insecurities are coming from there. So when you apply the TLC questioning sequence and ask, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? Do it with a little bit of self-compassion and understand that these insecurities are coming from somewhere and you yourself can talk to yourself in a way that has more compassion and shedding light into where these messages are coming from. That is so cool. You know, most people, when I ask that question, will talk about having a bubble bath or eating ice cream or going out in nature. And those are all awesome self-care practices. But what you're talking about, I mean, I love this, this whole focus on what is that inner critic saying to you? And how do you address that little voice? Because for many of us, that is the source of the things that make us feel like shit is that inner voice telling us things that aren't true or that really don't have any basis in reality or that make no sense. And so getting right to the root of that makes so much sense. Absolutely. And, and I consider that self-care because you're giving yourself the permission to feel what you feel. You're giving yourself the permission to acknowledge that these thoughts exist in your head but also giving you the permission to explore whether these thoughts are true, logical, or constructive. Because yeah, more often than not, they have no basis in reality. They are illogical and they are destroying you. So when you find that space, that quiet space to tap into your thoughts and really try to understand with a little bit of self-compassion that it's okay to feel this way sometimes, that it's okay to be having these thoughts but instead of having a fight with these thoughts, you look into it, you explore it, ask, is it, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? Because that way you could realize for yourself that some of these thoughts have no place in your reality and that they are destroying you. So you can find ways to, to shift your perspective and make an informed decision on what you need to do next. Yeah, it is self-care and it's also self-defense. You know, for me, this is this is very much part of the realm of self-defense. And one of the things that kind of came up in my mind as you were talking about that is like sometimes these thoughts that we have aren't even ours. It's what we've heard from somebody else or it's a script that we have, you know, learned or been exposed to in our families or in, you know, another group where we've just kind of absorbed it. And it doesn't actually belong to us. It's not something that we've chosen. And so I think that what you're talking about, that really helps. It, you know, you said to find the space and the, and the time and the quiet to actually get curious and explore what is actually happening here. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, some of the messages that you are holding came from your early childhood experiences. Maybe they came from social media. So having that space and quiet time to explore where these thoughts are coming from, to acknowledge that, yes, you are thinking these thoughts, but you have this opportunity to see if it is true, if it is logical, if it is constructive. And when you answer these questions, especially the first question, is it true? Because there are some times when I ask my clients this, is it true? And they will say, of course it is true. And then you ask them, where's the evidence? Have you got proof that this is true? And then suddenly they realize, um, 
no, <laughs> it's actually just in my head. So be sure that when you ask these questions, if especially the first question, is it true? Make sure that you actually do have evidence to support that it is true. Because if you haven't got the, then it's possible that, you know, it's just something that you have inside your head. That's why I would say if you are holding on to inner critic messages for all your life, for 20, 30, 40 years, um, you've been holding on to these messages. It might be difficult for you to see that it is untrue, illogical, or destructive. You know, for all your life, you've, you've seen these messages to be true because this is all you knew for your, you know, in your life. So what I would say is if that's you and if you're struggling to, to find that it's untrue, illogical, or destructive, then that's the time for you to reach out to a friend, maybe get a coach or talk to your therapist or counselor. Maybe you have a spiritual leader, you know, a buddy someone to talk to because when you talk to someone else and point out to you that what you can see is true has no basis in reality then you know it could be an eye opener for you what you what you see as true might not necessarily be true in the real world so it might be worth talking to someone if you do struggle with the TLC questioning sequence I've noticed that some of my clients, when, when we have our one-to-one sessions, when we go through the TLC questioning sequence, sometimes what they see as true is not necessarily true. So if I give you an example, I had a client, she was telling me something like, I'm not qualified to do my job. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have the, the qualifications and experience to do my job. And I would ask her, is it true? And she said, of course it is true. This is how I feel. And I would ask her, can I have a look at your CV <laughs> or your resume? I think that's what you call them in the States. You know, you, can I have a look at your resume? Because from there, you might find that you actually do have the skills, you have the qualifications, you have the experience to, to do what you are doing now. So that's what I have to say. If you are struggling with the TLC questioning sequence because you cannot see that it is untrue, illogical, or destructive, reach out to a friend, to your mentor, a coach, your spiritual leader, whoever it is that you can confide in so you can see if your perspective, if what you see is true, actually is true in the real world. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very helpful. And you're right that, you know, we can be so convinced of our own reality that it's almost impossible to realize that we're, you know, like the frog in the pot of water, right? We don't even realize that's where we are, but having somebody else shine their light on and say, well, actually, you know, here's another way to look at it. And I think you might be mistaken, or I think there's another way for you to look at this can be really, really helpful. So I'm curious what advice you would give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your early twenties. Oh. In my early 20s, I would probably say don't be too hard on yourself. If you are starting off in your career and you're trying to com- you are trying to compare yourself to others who are 10, 20, or 30 years ahead of you and you are feeling incompetent because they are so good and you feel as if you don't know anything that you, you haven't done anything uh, well in your job, just recognize that you are just starting out and the people you're comparing yourself with are far ahead of the game. 
remember that we are in in our careers or at the stage in our lives at, at, at different points. And when you recognize that you are learning, you are still growing, you are still developing, it makes it more exciting and you can be forgiven for little things that you still don't know, recognizing that there's still room for growth, there's still room for development. It's an exciting time. So just enjoy it and don't be too hard on yourself. I, I love that. I have two daughters who are in their 20s and they, of course, have many friends who are you know, peers in that same age group. And one of the things that I've seen is that many of them feel as though it's too late for them, like they missed the boat because they haven't gone the traditional path of, you know, high school, college degree, you know, beginning entry level job, you know, onto that career path. And they, they kind of feel like they missed the boat is too late and life is over. And yet they're in their 20s. There's so much that in this life, there's always an opportunity to learn and grow. And if I have to say, as a former university lecturer, I've had a lot of mature students. And the most mature student I had was 70 years old. So we have that opportunity to keep learning, to keep growing. It's never too late to, to, to explore uh, new things. For me, being uh, in academia for 20 years and leaving it to explore something new, at first it is daunting. For me, I was terrified. <laughs> when I left academia, because academia was all I knew. And if I leave, I will have to start over. But for me, leaving academia and starting over and learning new things, I found that quite exciting, picking up new knowledge, learning new skills. I know that there are a lot of millennials, you know, kids in their 20s, and they, they are doing so well. In, in their online business, in their online career. And here I am, nearly 40, just starting out, feeling a little bit clueless. It's like, what's going on here? Uh, it, it can be quite scary. It can be quite frightening. But for me, I put on the mindset that I am here. I'm willing to grow. I'm willing to learn. And for the past two years that I'm in the online space, I really learned a lot of new skills, a lot of new knowledge, met some amazing people online, and it's just fascinating. It, it gave me a, a renewed perspective in life, uh, a, a renewed appreciation for life and how much that we can learn and grow as we progress in, in, this, uh, in this world. Oh, I love that. that <laughs> I'm just like a resounding yes over here for that. And, and it, what it's... What I'd like to do now actually is is talk with you about fear because that transition that you had from quite a long period of your life in academia out into the world to do something completely different, I'm sure evoked a lot of fear. It's, it's a common thing for a lot of women who maybe have had a corporate job for 20 years and then decide they want to become an entrepreneur or maybe were stay-at-home moms for like, I mean, I, I basically left my high-tech career to be a stay-at-home mom for 20 years. And for me looking at, well, what am I going to do next? Like that was pretty daunting. And so I'm curious, you, you wrote a book called Fear Is Not My Enemy. And I would like to pick your brain a little bit about the subject of fear, because as you know, that is near and dear to my heart. It's a big part of what I teach in my self-defense programs is how to navigate through fear. So it's my initial question for you is, if fear is not an enemy, what is it? 
Oh, right. Well, fear is actually your friend. It's an essential component to our survival. If we didn't experience fear, we wouldn't survive as a species. Because you experience fear because that is your brain's way of telling you that there is a potential risk. If you didn't experience fear, you might be putting yourself in unnecessary risk without any preparation and without any without any informed decision on what you need to do when you are confronted by that situation. So we experience fear. It's deeply ingrained in our human experience, but it is there for a reason. And the reason for that is to protect you, to keep you alive. Because essentially what fear does is it allows you to stop, have a look at the risk, makes you assess what the risk is, you get a physiological response as well because it triggers this very primitive part of our brain that triggers your fight, flight, freeze, or flop response. You will have the physiological response to it. Maybe you might feel palpitations. Maybe you might have the tunnel vision, you know, just to focus on the potential risk. But eventually, as your body uh, response, your prefrontal cortex will catch up. And the prefrontal cortex is that part of your brain. It's the thinking brain, the thinking part of your brain, where you are now able to assess what is the risk, what's your ability to manage this risk, what are the consequences of, of action or inaction, so you can make an informed decision on what you need to do next. Unfortunately, for some people, when they experience fear, they end up either freezing or they end up running away from it. And it stops them from doing what they need to do because they feel the fear and their, their response is, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. I'm going to go. Instead of actually recognizing that, okay, there is a risk. There's a potential risk. Let me assess what the situation is what my abilities are, what are the consequences of action or inaction, so you can be better prepared, you can make an informed decision, do what you need to do next. So if we go back through the the primitive years, for example, when we were still living in caves, if you didn't experience fear, you might go into the jungle and just be attacked by, you know, by wild animals without being adequately prepared because you didn't really feel anything. You, you, you didn't have that warning that there is a potential risk because you didn't experience fear. On the other hand, because you feel fear, you will try to find ways to protect yourself because you cannot stay in the cave forever. You're going to starve, right? So the mechanism, we feel fear because it allows you to see, look, there are risks here, but you need to assess the risk, assess your ability to manage the risk. How can you minimize the risk so you can make an informed decision on what you need to do next? Oh, man, I just, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Because this is exactly what I teach. You know, it's... Like I could take what you just said verbatim and drop it into my course and it would fit perfectly. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it is just an intrinsic part of being a human being and it has a value. I mean, there's a book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker that's just fabulous. I recommend it all the time. But also understanding how the brain works and that there's a reason why we have different parts of the brain. And the primitive part is just all about survival. But if we can get through the initial like oh shit moment, 
to where our cognitive brain can actually function, then we can start to problem solve and we can do all of that assessment stuff that you were talking about. That's just spot on. I, I just love that. What do you teach people in terms of like how to actually navigate and make the, the best use of fear? Right. To be honest with you, I, I still apply the TLC questioning sequence, even when it comes to helping you to manage your fear and helping you to, to assess the risks and so on. So, for example, you are in your corporate job and you are thinking about leaving your corporate job and pursuing uh, an entrepreneur life, you know, because you want to have the freedom, you want to have more control and autonomy over your time and, and what you do with your time. But you are feeling the fear because there are a lot of reasons to be fearful. And certainly for me, I, I felt all sorts of fears. Like I had the fear of uncertainty, not really knowing what's going to happen next. I have this fear of being judged that people are going to say things like, well, you know, you spent 20 years in academia, you, you trained, you have a career. Why on earth are you going to throw that away up to pursue something else? So you have that fear of judgment. You also have this fear of failure because if you pursue something new and there are things that you still need to develop, there are still things that you need to learn there is a potential risk of failure, and that can be scary. In, in my book, I have these uh, five universal fears that, that we experience as humans. And one, the, one of the main universal fears is the fear of ego death. It's not necessarily the fear of the physical death, but it's the fear of you losing face, the fear of losing the respect of others, the fear of being judged, and certainly the, the fear of failure is is going to trigger that fear of ego death because when you fail, then you are putting yourself out uh, and, and you could present yourself like a fool. You are exposing yourself to ridicule. So certainly that scenario of if you are someone who wants to leave your job to pursue something else, all sorts of fear will come in and you need to understand again what we were talking about earlier you need to understand where this fear is coming from what messages are fueling this fear and what i would say again your inner critic message plays a crucial role here because for example my inner critic message will tell me things like ah uh, you don't know what you are doing ah uh, you're going to fail uh, people are going to make fun of you and they are going to judge you and so on and so forth. So the first thing that you need to do is recognize that you feel the fear, acknowledge that you are experiencing this emotion of fear, but ask yourself, where is this fear coming from? What messages am I telling myself that's fueling this fear? And when you recognize the messages like, I'm going to fail, I don't know what I'm doing, People are going to judge me. People are going to make fun of me. When you identify those inner critic messages, then you can apply the TLC questioning sequence. Ask, is it true? Is it logical? Is it constructive? And it's really important that you are honest about this because, again, one of the reasons why I tell my, I tell my clients and I tell my readers not to ignore or not to suppress their inner critic message because sometimes, yes, the inner critic message might be untrue, but sometimes it might be true. 
So for example, in my case, when I was planning my exit strategy to leave academia, I was planning to self-publish my books. I've been traditionally published with a traditional publisher. I, I would write something, I would hand it over to my publisher, and they will deal with the rest, right? But as a self-published author, I recognize that, okay, I'm going to write my book. Now, the things that my publisher used to do, I have to do it myself. And all the inner critic messages started coming in. Ah, you're going to flop. You don't know what you're doing. You haven't got a clue how self-publishing works. You don't know if, it's gonna, if, if people are going to read it. You don't know if it's going to be a flop or you're going to waste your time. So all of those inner critic messages are fueling my fear to not to leave my job because I don't know a thing about self-publishing. But instead of me getting paralyzed by those messages, I acknowledge that I feel the fear. I ask the questions, is it true? Is it true that I don't know anything about self-publishing? And the truth was, at the start, it was true. It was true that I didn't know how to self-publish. But that didn't stop me from doing what I had to do. Instead of taking that message and bringing me down, I used that and interpreted that as a signal for me to upskill to learn new things, to develop new knowledge and, and, new, and, and develop new skill sets so I can pursue what I need to do next. So that's what I've been telling you earlier about assessing the risk, assessing your ability to handle the risk so you can make an informed decision on what you need to do next. From my TLC questioning sequence, I've identified that it is true that I don't know anything about self-publishing. So instead of just accepting that as a given, I understood that, okay, this is where I am now. What can I do to minimize the risk of failure? What can I do to educate myself so I will know how to publish my book and launch it successfully on Amazon when I release it? Because the last thing I'd want is for me to write something pour my heart and soul into it and people not finding it, people not, not gaining the knowledge and expertise that I want to share with them. So what I did, instead of the fear stopping me from what I need to do, I used the fear to identify some of the limitations that I might have so I can upskill I can prepare, I can learn from others who, who are ahead of me and use that to my advantage, use that to minimize the risk of failure and pursue what I want to pursue in my life. That makes so much sense. And yet again, there's so many parallels between what you're talking about and what I do in the self-defense realm. It's, it's just uncanny really how many parallels there are. The coach that I work with a lot and whose system I teach, Tony Blauer developed something called the cycle of behavior, which is also called the neuropsychology or the neuroscience of fear. And with that, he talks exactly about what you were talking about, which is, you know, there's something, there's a scenario, there's a stimulus that creates this fear response in you. And then if you look at what are the things that I'm visualizing, what are the beliefs that I hold those are the things that are creating the fear, right? It's, it's all mental. And then 
Uh, he talks about false evidence appearing real and false expectations appearing real, which ties right into your question, right? <laughs> Is it true? And then with, with his whole way of laying this out, there is a point that he calls the challenged and threatened door, which is basically if, you, if you're feeling fear and you've got these things that you believe that aren't actually true, you're visualizing things that are negative, then what you're feeling is really threatened. And you're going to loop around and around and around and stay in that fear loop until you make a decision to stop being threatened and start feeling challenged. And when you feel challenged is when you do what you're talking about, which is like, okay, I, I am feeling scared. And I recognize that my beliefs and what I'm visualizing really have a lot to do with that, but I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to start coming up with a plan for what I can do to move forward. And so it, with his cycle of behavior, he lays all of that out and it just maps exactly to what you were just talking about. So I don't know if you've ever looked at his stuff, but I would, I would definitely recommend just go Google Tony Blauer, B-L-A-U-E-R and the cycle of behavior. And there's, he's got a whole bunch of stuff online that you can watch and listen to for free. Cause I think you just, you'd be sitting there going, oh yes, this is what I talk about too. <laughs> It's just great. Yes, absolutely. And and certainly in the in my TLC questioning sequence, that C part is is it constructive? You're essentially taking the inner critic message. And if it is something that is destroying you, if it is if it is not helping or serving you in any way, you can reframe it. But at the same time, you have to ask, how how can this inner critic message serve me? What can I do? to minimize the risk? How can I make it constructive and work to my benefit? So certainly there are parallels there. And again, in terms of you understanding what the risks are, understanding your ability to manage the risk and how you can minimize the risk. What can you do? What informed decision you need to take to minimize that risk so you can still pursue what you need to pursue in life, even if you're actually feeling the fear? Yes. Yeah, that's great. Well, I would like to talk a little bit about books and book publishing. And I guess where I'd like to start is, can you share a little bit about why it is so important to you to help women, and in particular survivors of abuse and violence, to tell their stories in book form? Absolutely. What I found is that so many of my current students have experiences in life that aren't necessarily joyful. So many of them have experienced trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma, even rooting back to childhood. And right now, they, have, uh, they are still in the healing process and they want to write their books as part of their therapeutic experience. They want to make sense of what happened to them, but they also want to share their story with others so others could also learn and be inspired that even if you have these difficult moments in your life, you still have the opportunity to heal and to transform your life and to take back control in your life. So certainly, I do have a lot of students right now who are writing their books. They're using it as a form of therapy to help them to make sense of their experiences, but also to try to use their story as a form of inspiration for other women or for anyone in that case, that there is hope at the end of the tunnel, that 
if they are able to survive this dark moment in their life, then there are lessons that others could learn from them and that they could still have happy and fulfilling lives despite a traumatic past that they've had. So how, how do they actually write the book? Right. In terms of writing the book, we do follow a very specific sequence in the self-publishing Made Simple community. And what I've noticed is that one of the biggest mistakes new authors make is that they would have this initial fire to write a book. They will feel inspired. It's like, yeah, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to write it now. The problem is they usually start off with good intentions and then life happens and they would prioritize life because there are more urgent things that they need to do. They will put the book on hold and then six months to six years later, the, the book is still on hold. So what I would say before you start writing your book is the first step is to make a conscious decision and commitment to actually get it done. When you make the conscious decision and commitment to write your book, even if you are busy and if, even if you are telling yourself, I don't have the time to do this, when you commit yourself, when you make that conscious decision to write your book, you will find the time. You will find the allocated time uh, dedicated just to write your book. In my case, when I started writing my books, I just gave birth. You know, I was returning from maternity leave. I had a full-time job, busy family life. But I made a conscious decision and commitment to write my books because I want to get my message out. I want to uh, use my knowledge in psychology, what I know from psychology, to help others to get, uh, to get unstuck, to overcome feelings of self-doubt and, and low self-worth, and to, to manage their fear. So I was dedicated. I was committed to getting my, getting my book done. So the very first step that you must not skip is that you need to make a conscious decision and commitment to get it done. And if you can, block out specific times in your diary. In my case, I would wake up at 6 in the morning and finish at 8. So I have two hours a day, every day, for the next six weeks to write my book. And, and after I've written it, they're done, essentially. So if you make that conscious decision and commitment to write your book, if you can allocate dedicated time in your calendar to, to work on your book, do nothing else. Just focus on your book. Consider it, consider it as like having an appointment with someone. You are not actually doing anything else during that time. It's your time for you and your book. Allocate that time and you'll be set on a good start with, with that. Well, that's great advice for pretty much any big goal that is meaningful is it's not going to happen unless you actually respect it enough to build it into your, your daily life. Absolutely. And once you've made that conscious decision and commitment to write your book, the second step that you need, and, and this is something that I go through with my self-publishing made simple students is we first explore your purpose. You need to understand why you are writing your book. Because writing a book, I have to say, it's not an easy task. It's a mammoth project. And it will take a lot of grit and resilience to actually see it through. 
So when you understand your purpose, when you understand your why, you'll be able to anchor yourself in that purpose. So when things start to become more challenging, when things start to become more difficult, you remind yourself why you're doing it in the first place. So you might be doing it for your reason of maybe you want to write your story so your story will be told. Maybe you want it to help you to make sense as a form of, you know, it can be therapeutic for you if you've experienced trauma, if you've had, um, you know, if you're still trying to make sense of the pain. Maybe you also, you also have this purpose of sharing your, your story and sharing your experience with others. So you can share the life lessons that you've learned, maybe be an inspiration and a source of hope for others. Maybe you want to contribute in the discussion of the topic around, let's say, domestic abuse or childhood trauma, whatever it is that, that you're writing about. So always remember to, to, to stay grounded in your purpose. Clarify your why. And, and your reasons why might be at different levels. It might be for you. It might be for your immediate family. It might be for, your, for, your, uh, for, for the wider society, for inspiration and hope. It might be that you want it to... To, to be your exit strategy as, as I, I had mine. You know, I, I wanted uh, a source of uh, passive income, you know, getting uh, extra money from your royalties. Whatever your purpose might be, whatever your why might be, make sure that before you start writing your book, clarify that, understand your purpose, and ground yourself in your purpose. Oh, that's that's great. And and I hate to say this, but just listening to you, you just popped off like two other ideas for books in my head, which is really bad because I have three already that I want to do. And I haven't gotten off the dime to start any of them. And now you're giving me some ideas about other ones, because just thinking about why, I think that's why I haven't started the other three. And I can see how if you skip that piece, it would be very hard to keep up the commitment that you made to doing it every day or three days a week or whatever it was that you planned out. Absolutely. And, and you have to think of it as a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you really need to get your mindset right. You really need to get your foundations right. And unfortunately, there are a lot of aspiring authors who skip those two essential steps of making the conscious decision and commitment and allocating the time to do it, but also understanding their why. They have such, shall we say, wobbly foundations that when they start off that way and when life becomes hectic, when other things have to take priority, the book gets easily dropped off and it never sees the light of day because they haven't set their foundations right. So if you are thinking about writing your book, first, make a conscious decision and commitment to do it, allocate specific time. It doesn't have to be forever. It could just be six weeks or it could just be four weeks. I have a 12-week program where I guide my students in in this step-by-step process. I give them very specific tasks every week to do And the writing part is only for four weeks. And many of my students get it done because they are so hyper-focused, recognizing that it's not going to take forever to write a book. And if they can just concentrate during this time, then they will get it done. So to avoid overwhelm, have that focus, have that commitment, ground yourself in your why, 
And the next step that I will have to share with you, Cynthia, is because I understand that you have a lot of ideas. You have a lot of uh, topics that you want to write about. And that's another struggle aspiring authors face is that for me, for example, as a psychologist, there are so many things that I can write about. But the next step that you need to take is that you actually do need to do your market research. Before you start writing your book, you need to understand what your readers are looking for so you can write a book that will serve them well. And most of the time, you will find that your readers are looking for very specific solutions to very specific problems. So you don't have to talk about everything under the sun. When you understand what your readers need right now, what they need help and support with right now, you can focus on that. You can, you can really try to hone in and, and pinpoint what is going to be the focus of your book. It's going to be less overwhelming for you and less overwhelming for your readers as well. And so... The third step that I tell my students what to do when it comes to writing a book is never, ever, ever skip the market research part. Don't start writing your book until you actually understand what your readers need and what they are looking for. When you understand your readers' fears, their goals, their frustrations, their what are, what are they aspiring for? When you understand their deepest needs and desires, you would be able to write a book that will serve them well. You would be able to really focus on what would be valuable and meaningful to them so it makes it less overwhelming for you and less overwhelming for the readers as well. And is that true even if what you're doing is like a memoir or an autobiography or telling your story? Yes, absolutely, because your life is vast. There are so many things. There are so many stories that you can share. And when you try to talk about your life uh, as a memoir or uh, if you are trying to reach, for example, other women who are experiencing domestic abuse, you need to understand what do these readers need to read about right now? How are you going to take your story to serve your readers. So you might have one pivotal experience in your life that you really want to talk about, but from which angle are you going to present it? How are you going to present it? What tone, what kind of voice are you going to present your story? And so when you understand your readers, when you understand what your readers are looking for and what they need right now, the way you are going to write your story, the way you're going to present your story will be influenced by how you're going to serve your audience. And when you do that, when you do your market research, when you pay attention to your readers, then you will have a book that will serve them well and that will be meaningful to your readers as well. Mm, that makes so much sense. So how difficult is it to not just get it published, but to actually get it seen and read? So again, this is another common mistake that new authors make. Okay, writing the book. For some authors, this is the easy part. And certainly for me as an academic, writing is the easy part. The marketing and getting it published does need a different hat. You need to wear your marketing and publisher hat on 
if you actually want your book to be seen and to be launched to number one bestseller on Amazon. All of my students are getting to number one bestseller because we have a launch sequence that follow. So what I would say is in terms of how difficult or how easy it is to get it published and, and launch it to number one, I would say is that would depend on whether you know what you are doing or not. If you have a strategy and if you have a sequence to follow, you will see that all you need to do is take one step at a time until you actually get it done. So for example, after you finish writing your book, you need to revisit your market research, find a way on how you're going to package your book so it is enticing to your readers and that it is going to attract the attention of your readers. The trouble is there are so many new self-published authors who don't wear their marketing hat. They only wear their creative hat. They see themselves solely as writers. They only see themselves as authors. And they don't recognize that they also need to be skilled marketers to make sure that when they release their books, their books are actually going to be seen and going to, to be read by their readers. So I keep going back to, to the first initial steps that we had. We, we talked about the commitment. We talked about the purpose. But we also talked about market research. And when you do your market research right, you will be able to optimize your book, optimize the keywords of your title, your subtitle, your book description, your book cover. So it actually taps into the, the attention, you know, it will attract the attention of your potential readers and you will have a, a, a better chance of competing on Amazon because there are millions of books on Amazon. And if you're not adequately prepared, if you don't know what you are doing and if you don't have the strategy to, to launch your book on Amazon, then you're going to drown. For people like us who have educated ourselves and who have prepared enough to, to build our launch team, to have a launch sequence, those books who aren't prepared, they are going to drown because people like us who are prepared and who are educated and who know, you know, we actually do know what we are doing because we understand how the Amazon algorithm works, we easily get to number one bestseller on Amazon because we know how to trigger the algorithm, have a strategy in place, optimize our keywords. So you will see if you join my self-publishing made simple community, every single one of my students, when they launch their books, they get to number one bestseller because it is relatively easy. You would be surprised how easy it is to launch and, you know, to publish and launch your book to number one seller if and only if you know what you are doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you're essentially screwed because there are people like us who know, you know, we actually do know how the, how the algorithm works and we optimize our books so we can make the most of that algorithm and our books get shown more on Amazon and we are able to attract the attention of our readers because we had our readers in mind in the first place. Oh, yeah, that sounds like it's almost exactly the same process as launching a podcast. Yeah, that's great. Because I think the worst possible thing would be to pour so much time, effort, energy, money, and heart into creating a book and then just have it be invisible. 
Absolutely. And as you know, with launching a podcast or launching any product for that matter, it's it's preparation. You actually do need to have a strategy. You need to be prepared before you launch. And for me, what I've noticed is that there are some self-published authors who would publish their books and then they would run off and ask their families and friends to buy their books, you know, to ask for support after you've already published your book. And I would say, I'm afraid they're already too late because that step that they are doing where they're asking for support, they should have done that six weeks before they even published their books. You know, in my 12-week Get It Done Challenge, we organized the launch team six weeks in advance. There's so much uh, preparation involved in publishing your book and launching it successfully on Amazon. So if you know how the sequence works, if you know how to position your book and, and optimize your, your book so you can attract your readers, then you have a, a, a better chance of success. In fact, it's, it's almost 100% guaranteed that you will get to number one bestseller on Amazon when you launch if and only if you know what you are doing, if you know which categories to choose, how you're going to optimize the keywords, how you're going to build your launch team. So by the time you launch, you have the social proof. People can see that others have already read your books. It would be easier to sell your books that way because you already have people who can testify that your book is actually worth reading. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. That's a that's a really interesting dive into the world of publishing. And it's one that I wanted to go into because I have so many friends and connections who actually would love to publish a book, but don't really know exactly how to go about it. So, and May, this has been such an interesting conversation. We've been talking for more than an hour, so I suppose we should wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I hope that uh, your your listeners found value in our conversation. We We talked about imposter syndrome. We talked about fear. And now we are talking about self-publishing. And what I would say is we can actually tie all of those together. I, I know that there are people who are experiencing imposter syndrome. They feel as if they're not good enough to write a book. Maybe they are also feeling the fear that they're, if they do write a book, that it's going to flop. But from my experience as a self-published author and as someone who helps other coaches, other visionaries, other women who just want to share their story as a source of inspiration by by writing a book and publishing it on Amazon, what I would say is your self-doubt, this feeling of incompetence, all this fear that you might be experiencing, always remember that you have a message that's, that's worth sharing, that there are people out there whose lives will be transformed because you have written your, sto- your story and that you've written it with courage and conviction. So always remember that there are other people out there waiting and those people they will have so much transformation and so much hope and inspiration by reading your book so if you're feeling uncomfortable if you're feeling as if you're not good enough to write a book if you're scared that it's going to flop always remember that there are people like me who would be able to guide you and support you through this process if you don't know how to to do it if you haven't got a clue how it works educate yourself, follow the footsteps of others who have done it 
before who have that track record. You're not the first one to do it and you won't certainly be the last. And when you reach out for help, when you reach out for support, it becomes less daunting. And when you have a structure, when you have a system to follow, it becomes easier. And I can guarantee you, when you do write your book, you will have that sense of satisfaction that you've actually done it. And when you see that you're making an impact on other people's lives because you've written your book, I mean, the feeling is just absolutely amazing. You won't regret it. Oh, it just like gets me so pumped up to get my ass back home so I can sit down and start writing. Because like I said, I've got several that are bubbling around and want to come out. So thank you for that. That's just awesome. Before we wrap up, I have one more question, which is how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? How can women develop their own personal power and courage? What I would say is to just embrace yourself, recognize that you are not perfect, and that's absolutely fine. That even if you have your flaws and imperfections, you are human. And when you embrace yourself, as they say, warts and all, then you can truly be empowered and be comfortable for the person and for the badass that you are. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yes. Well, before we sign off, I would like to give you a chance to share how people can follow up and connect with you because I'm sure there are going to be people who want. So can, how, how do people get in touch with you? Ah, sure. Well, my books are all available on Amazon. They're available on print, Kindle, and audiobook versions. So if you want to check out my books, Change Your Life for Good, Imposter Syndrome Remedy, and Fear is Not My Enemy, you can download them on on Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. It actually depends on which marketplace you are in. Also, if you're interested to write and self-publish your books, maybe you are an online entrepreneur or maybe you are someone who would like to share your story and publish it on Amazon, my group is called Self-Publishing Made Simple. I have free resources and I have a, a really supportive community there where you can connect with other aspiring authors who are in the process of writing and developing their books. I have a free starter kit so you can see all of the steps that you need to follow to write and self-publish your books. And I go live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. UK time in that group for an Ask Me Anything session. So if you have any questions to ask whatsoever about writing or self-publishing, and actually even psychology, literally, Anyone can ask me anything in that community. So you're more, wel- more than welcome to join us in the self-publishing Made Simple community on Facebook. Wonderful. All right. Well, I don't think I've joined your community yet, and I probably should, so I will do that. But we will also include all the links in the show notes so that it's easy for people to find. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to actually reading your book, Cynthia. I'll hold you accountable to that because... You did say that you have a lot of ideas in your head, a lot of topics for your book. And I think you really need to get your message out. You have so much power and so much insight and you can help so many more people by writing your book. You, you put yourself in front of literally millions of readers and yeah, you can, you can widen your influence um, by writing your book. So really, Cynthia, I, I would encourage you to go for it. Well, I will definitely follow up with you because the first thing that I I would love to do is basically the ABCs of self-defense. 
Oh, awesome. Do an alphabet book. I think that would be so much fun and so much different than just doing a really dry, how to keep yourself safe sort of a book. And the second one that came into my mind that is just bubbling around and wanting to come out is the Empowered Woman's Guide to Safety and Freedom. But while you were talking about books and describing the process, and in particular, while you, while you were talking about having to really get clear on your why, the, the reason why I was like, oh my God, I can't have another idea for a book right now because I haven't even done the ones I've already thought of. But it was to go ahead and create a guide for how to raise badass girls. Mm. Well, perhaps you can do a book series. And this is certainly something that I recommend with my students when they have so much passion, they have so many things that they want to write about. You can write a book series, plan the series and tackle it one book at a time. But since you've mentioned it in your podcast, I'm sure that your listeners will be looking forward to that. And you know, you will have the support of, of your audience when you launch your books and when you finally make it happen. I'm sure they'll be thrilled when your books are finally out. Yeah, I hope so. Well, I guess while we're talking about that, I'll just say that to my listeners. If any of those three sound interesting to you or you have other ideas about what you would like to see addressed out in the world by a woman who is like me, you can actually email me at cynthia.jolacur.com or I have a new function on my website. If you go on my website and especially on the podcast page, I've implemented a tool called SpeakPipe, which actually allows you to leave a 90-second voice message for me about anything at all. And so you can just go there and click on that little thing on the right side of the page and send me a voice message. So anybody has any ideas about that or actually any questions, you can use that new function to send them to me. So with that, I want to say thank you so much, Emma. This has been a great conversation and I'm really happy that we were able to get together and have this conversation because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of feedback and a lot of interest in all the aspects that we discussed. So thank you for, for coming on the show and for providing such great insights and suggestions and tips that are really implementable right now. Pleasure. Thanks, Cynthia. This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.